the next uh, the couple of dangers there I mentioned a minute ago, they're two, two basic uh, reflexes in evangelicalism. That's to love them full stop, the big churches, or to despise them. And I don't think either one of those is good. But let me try to frame it this way. Um, I'm going to give you a couple of case studies. I've called it a tale of two successful pastors. Uh, these are real situations that I'm aware of from South Carolina, okay? The names have been changed to protect the innocent. All right. Case study number one. Pastor Jeff clearly has an ability to connect with an audience. His love for the Bible is clear. He has gathered around him many capable leaders at his church, and as his church has grown, they've been able to foster disciple-making contexts in their church that allow their burgeoning numbers to stay connected in small groups, providing community and accountability. Now they are at their space capacity. No buildings are available in their area that can house them, even with multiple services. Pastor Jeff and his team decide that the best way to steward the obvious gifts God has given them and the success that he's blessed them with is to open up a storefront across town and live stream their teaching in. In fact, this idea catches on. Soon, they are able to pipe Pastor Jeff's dynamic teaching into multiple small locations in their metro area. The leadership team reasons that what they are doing is working. Few people have the gifts of Pastor Jeff, and it would be bad stewardship of his phenomenal teaching and leadership ability to keep it to themselves. And after all, if God were not in it, how could they continue to be growing as they are? That's case study number one. Case study number two, real situation. Names have been changed. Pastor Tim has many of the same gifts Pastor Jeff has. God has obviously blessed him. His small church plant, it merged with two other struggling churches in their Bible Belt town, and now they are building... Uh, 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 and now they have a building that once housed many local mill families. But now with a changing community, his area is younger, affluent, and has not been reached with the gospel. Tim's church, too, is at its space limits. But Tim, instead of gathering a team of effective specialist associate pastors, has been pouring into young young seminary students. And now these seminary students are leaving his church to take pastorates out in the suburbs. A few have even planted a new churches that eventually merged with struggling churches who had buildings. When Pastor Tim preaches, he encourages his people to gather and join Pastor Matt or Pastor Phil who have been sent out from his church and join them at their churches that are closer to their own homes. Pastor Tim believes in multiplying disciples and raising up new leaders instead of seeing his own church's brand spread through the city. It's just two case studies to consider. We're not in the realm of which one is sinful and which one's not. Which one seems more prudent? Here are a few traits of the intentional megachurch mentality. And here's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about being big. I'm talking about setting out to be big, right? 
instead of multiplying, equipping others, planting churches, revitalizing struggling churches, merging churches. The fact of the matter is right now, um, as every uh, denominational missionary, whatever they're called now, ASM, Associational Mission Strategist, AMS, I always get it mixed up with meteorologists because they're AMS certified. Um, but, um, but now, you know, every time I talk to an AMS or every time, DOM was the old term, they're, they're saying things like 60 to 80% of our churches can't pay a full-time pastor. And some of the reason is, in Baptist land, if we're quite honest with ourselves, 40 and 50 years ago, we got mad and split off in about three different ways. And now the churches that we split off and formed can't sustain full-time pastorates and probably ought to just merge with a few of that. That would probably be a really good use of gospel resources. Um, but what about the intentional desire to be big? Um, here are a few traits of the intentional megachurch mentality. It's typically oriented around a personality. In fact, I can't think of one megachurch that is not. I mean, maybe if I sat down and really grunted, I, I can't think of one that's not identified with a single front man. I mean, most of the time, that's, that's just a, a trait. Secondly, it frequently values production value. Um, i trying to figure out how to set this up. You, you get the sense at, at a megachurch that, um, and I, I mean, in a sense, I, I know this because I served on staff at one, okay? The kinds of conversations that are occurring around the table at staff meeting, I'm ashamed to recount a lot of them. You get the sense that what we're trying to do is produce something that people can come and consume. There's this idea that we need to make a sleek, well-done production here. Um, so that's just, just a reality. Um, thirdly, often filled with disaffected young people from other backgrounds. And I think that's what Dr. Kidd is getting at there, that uh, although there is great success in reaching folks who have been de-churched, great success sometimes in reaching uh, the unchurched, uh, those who uh, are unconverted, uh, much of the growth um, comes through transfer. Number four, most often downplays doctrinal distinctives in order to attract a wider audience. This is probably the main marker. Um, in evangelicalism, here's the thing. We have a tendency, I mean, I'm not talking about them out there. I'm talking about us in here, like how, how I'm set up because we, we grow up in a tradition that values conversion, right? We, we deeply value conversion. We can almost get to the place that we think if it doesn't have to do with salvation, then it's not important. Second level and third level issues somehow, hey, listen, it's all about the gospel. It's all about the mission of Jesus. Second level and third level things get downplayed. Um, but the doctrine of the church is where most megachurch mentality types diverge. 
uh, typically meaningful church membership is downplayed and the church is viewed as more of a movement than an institution. I wish I would have thought of this before right now. Oh, man. There is a classic video. Um, John, you'll remember what I'm talking about, maybe. I think it was put out. It would be, I don't know if it would be too much to ask you to find it. It's probably too much. Uh, um, because I don't, I don't even know what you would search for. But there's a, an elephant, the elephant room conversations that Gospel Coalition used to put on. And they put three pastors uh, around a table and they started asking questions. And one of them was Mark Dever, Capitol Hill Baptist Church. They have, they're landlocked in, on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. They can only have so many people in their sanctuary. And, but back in the 60s, they started buying up properties because of white flight. Everybody was leaving the inner city. And so like the house that Mark Dever lives in, the church bought for like $60,000 in Washington, D.C. And they've just been able to keep these properties and maintain them. Well, they, they had an opportunity to build a bigger sanctuary. And instead of building a bigger sanctuary, they started training up young men and now, across the river, in so many different places, in Maryland, in, in Alexandria, there are healthy churches that have popped up. And Mark Dever is saying, hey, you live in Alexandria? You don't need to come to church here. You need to go out to Garrett Kell's church. Oh, you live in Maryland? You need to go to Chevrolet Baptist Church over there. That's where Jonathan Lehman is. Great church. It's closer to your home. It's, it's part of your community. Go be there. He's like, we're not going to do two services. We're not going to build a bigger building. We want you to go out. Mark Dever sets around the, the table with, uh, with two other guys, Mark Driscoll and who's the bald-headed dude from uh, Harvest Chapel or, or whatever it was? James McDonald. And they start dragging Mark Driscoll giving him such a hard time that basically our model is better. We're, me, we're, we're, we're reaching so many more people. We're doing the stuff. Why are you doing this and all this? And of course, Mark, Dris, Mark Dever starts bringing out Greek and, and talking about you know, the ecclesia is a gathering and it's, you can only have one of them at a time and things like that. But anyway, both of those two other guys who scoffed at him for his model, both of those two other guys are now disgraced uh, have had incredible uh, crashes and burns. I mean, there's so much hubris, so much arrogance uh, among those two guys, and it just seems to happen all the time. This evangelical celebrity culture that we've created ends up ruining these guys who are incredibly successful. Uh, they, they just seem to all the time crash and burn. But anyway, um, I, I, would, I would love to show, show you that. But anyway... Didn't come to my mind until just right now. Here are the positives. I think it's important to point out good things that megachurches are doing. Um, megachurches are often movement churches, meaning they were able to gain momentum by means of genuine enthusiasm and buy-in of their people. I mean, they have done a really good job at organizing people around their mission. They've done a really good job about getting people uh, out of the four walls of the church. And typically, when you go to a megachurch, there's excitement there. Um, this, is, this is something that we should, I think that we should take to heart. There's this idea of uh, freshness and of a willingness to get out into the community and reach our community with uh, many times the gospel, many times something not as good as the gospel, but many times the gospel. Secondly, here's another positive. Because they're able to centralize their resources, they're able to provide extra benefits to their people with the discretionary income that's available through their model. 
In other words, because they're able to have a smaller staff among more people, then clearly they have more resources to spread out. Um, I mean, you could imagine... And we're, we're trying to do uh, an ESL ministry here. It's a great thing. The Lord's raised up a couple people who are passionate about that. Uh, but, I mean, it would be very difficult for us to have an ESL ministry and a special needs ministry and a you know, Romanian church ministry and you know, all, all these different things. So uh, the, the centralization of resources does provide some benefits. Uh, thirdly, Many have found ways to stay small and push back against the stage-only mentality through small group ministry. So in other words, as you get big numerically, you need to find ways to stay small. And, and so by emphasizing a small group ministry, many megachurches keep their people connected to one another. You may not know 2% of the people you see on a Sunday morning, but you know your small group really, really well. Uh, listen, number four, the newness and casual nature of many megachurches is often attractive to those unaccustomed to traditional worship forms. Now just think about the very real reality of, of if you had never been to church in your life before and you walk in those back doors and there's a hundred people and every head turns around and looks, right? And it's like you are seen and you are known. And, that, and that's good. I mean, that's why I'm here. I believe in that. But there's also the reality that someone who might be just kind of wanting to explore a few things can kind of slip into a place where they're not even known. They might not even, you know, just kind of fly under the radar and they hear the gospel. Could be a very good thing. Okay. Last one, uh, the resources available and staffing breadth can allow leaders to specialize, to take sabbaticals and avoid burnout. So it's another thing that larger models are able to accommodate. Um, what are the negatives? Uh, a few negatives. The megachurch movement, and I'm talking about, I'm not talking about being big as a result of God's blessing. I'm talking about being big, like the, the desire to be big. It relied very heavily on numerical growth strategies. Okay? This philosophy sought not to give people what they needed but to ask people what they wanted. In a classic instance of this, uh, Rick Warren, will, will, he tells the story of what he did when he moved into Orange County, California. They basically did demographic studies and determined that Orange County was where all the suburban growth was going to occur. And they basically rode a wave of baby boomer demographic growth because they positioned themselves right at the right freeways and all this stuff. And then he went out into his community and knocked on doors and took surveys, asking about music style preference, asking about favorite, I mean, all kinds of different things that didn't even pertain to church. And so this is commonly called the seeker-sensitive movement. Um, uh, I, I'm, you know, so... Uh, it's just worth saying that, um, well, I'm just going to, re let me read this because I'm short on time. The top of the next page. This is uh, from a, uh, an assessment or a, an article that I have footnoted there. Like all evangelical entrepreneurs, Warren didn't simply leave everything up to God. He had a business plan. When Warren was a student at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, he studied the writings of church growth advocates such as Donald A. McGavran and C. Peter Wenger. 
Lauren and his wife Kay also attended a conference in Southern California hosted by televangelist Robert H. Schuler. Very little gospel there, folks. And I, 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 that, that's not being uncharitable, that's just factual. Warren absorbed himself in demographic research to decide where to plant his own church. He eliminated Southern Baptist strongholds, reasoning that those markets were, all, were already saturated. So Warren's survey asked questions pertaining to music style, worship preference, and qualms with the church experiences that his residents had, and he tailored his church in reaction to his survey findings. So, uh, Next, there's a history in evangelicalism of the bitter fruits of a church being so dependent upon a single or central charismatic leader. I've only footnoted a couple here. I even left out, who's the guy? The guy, the bald-headed guy I mentioned, James McDonald. I even left him out. Um, but um, number four, Mike Cosper uh, has uh, done a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Uh, it's just interesting. I encourage you to check that out if you're into podcasts. Uh, Mega churches in their typical form, this is another reality. There's something to say about the fact that megachurches only seem to really happen in America. I mean, you just don't find this in other places. There are some places in the global south. South Korea is one good example, uh, although South Korea is not the global south. But there are some places in, um, in Africa, and usually it's uh, Pentecostal or charismatic, but... Um, the, the reality is, this is a uniquely American phenomenon. Uh, and it kind of makes us wonder, what is it about us that makes it so popular here? You know, that's just an interesting question to contemplate. Um, it's only possible due to the very American brand of consumer Christianity. Uh, next to last hash mark. Um, I've kind of already covered that in other areas. It's in the last hash mark. I've kind of already covered that in other areas. Okay, let's bring it all together. What can we learn from the megachurch movement? What can we say? Here's a list of conclusions, okay? Number one, there's nothing sinful about being big. We should pray for churches to be successful. I mean, we should genuinely pray for such an outpouring of the Spirit that God would give us the kind of problems related to space and related to resources. I mean, I hope that sometime in my tenure here, we could say, brother, sister, you need to go to the church down the road where brother so-and-so is ministering faithfully. He's closer to your house. Please go and encourage the work of that church, right? Um, uh, because of, of space needs, to kind of do the, the Mark Dever thing. Hey, I know where you live. It's a great part of town. There's a pastor right around the corner from you who's doing good work. Go join his church, right? Uh, number two, there is nothing, uh, so, so we just said there's nothing sinful about being big. Number two, there's nothing virtuous about being big either. No, there's nothing inherently praiseworthy. We should hope that size does not trump faithfulness. Uh, number three, the seeker-sensitive movement, here's another conclusion we should draw in humility. The seeker-sensitive movement has taught us that churches who put unnecessary obstacles in the way of newcomers are not serving them well, right? 
Um, when, 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 a, when a new person, I mean, and, and this, this, I know it's a stereotype or a, or a trope, but this has happened. A, a newcomer sitting down in a seat and being accosted because they're in my pew. Something like that. Not good. Not good, right? Uh, the seeker-sensitive movement has taught us that we should not be putting undue burdens, undue obstacles in the way of newcomers. We should be speaking in a way that they can understand. We should even be singing in a way that they can understand the words that are coming out of our mouths. And we should be uh, accommodating in these different ways, knowing that the culture outside is very often unfamiliar with the culture inside here. Um, number four, the reality of consumer Christianity presents churches today with an existential threat. Many churches are having to answer this question. Do we accommodate to the consumeristic nature of our surroundings or do we hold the line on matters of doctrine and health? Number five, I've kind of already addressed this, but I'll read it for the sake of getting through it. We should not assume that big equals bad and small equals good. While large churches can, uh, may be tempted toward top heaviness and the temptations that come with success, small churches can have their own built-in challenges too. The reality that in a smaller group, unhealthy voices can have an outsized impact. It's just a reality. All right, uh, the Bible. Let's see what the Bible says. Isn't that a good thing to do? So far, we've simply entertained pragmatic things. Uh, but this isn't where our decisions should be made. Like just what works. That's not, our, that's not our primary question. What do the scriptures have to say about our forms and faithfulness? Here are a few biblical principles. Number one. The New Testament's record of house church forms leaves us with a model that tilts, I'm trying to be charitable and, and, and honest, it kind of tilts toward church planting as a norm. Think of the churches of Galatia. Uh, Romans 16.5 speaks of a church meeting in, a specific, in specific people's houses. On the island of Crete, which was no huge geographic place, Paul told Titus to appoint elders in each city. There's this idea that spreading and multiplying and going out will be uh, kind of the, the norm. At least that's what we see from the book of Acts. Number two, Acts 5.42 pictures the early leaders of the church ministering from house to house. That's the word that the Bible uses in the book of Acts chapter 5. This indicates that there has to be a closeness between the shepherd and the sheep. So let's put that out there. Number three, the assumption among even fledgling churches in the New Testament that Paul, Titus, and Timothy should expect to be able to appoint elders demonstrates that God will not leave his church without shepherds. Let me read, that was a really long sentence. When Paul tells Titus, and we just finished teaching through Titus, Paul tells Titus on the island of Crete, which we can assume is full of brand new believers, he says, appoint elders in each city as I directed you. There's an expectation that God is raising up people 
around that can move into these positions of leadership. And so what I'm simply saying is when I hear this attitude, and I'm sad to say I've heard it in a first-person context, when I hear this attitude that, well, we don't need to plant another church We just need to get everybody to come here because I'm the good teacher and I'm the good leader and I've got the secret sauce. We've never, never, it's never said that out loud, but that's the subtext. That seems to cut against the grain of what the Bible says we should expect. We should expect that God is raising up other leaders who could pastor a church over there and who could be a deacon over there and who could be an elder over there at that church. God is active in his His gifts are not confined to dynamic personalities. Um, So here is an unsolicited opinion from Pastor Greg. You asked a question. You asked the pastor, and so I got to answer. Okay, here's an unsolicited. Actually, it's solicited because the question came in. Um, So before offering this opinion, I want to affirm a few things about how the questioner, I don't know who the questioner is. Notice, if you look back on the front, how the questioner asked the question. Are megachurches unbiblical, or does the size of a church really matter as long as they are correctly preaching the word, discipling their people, and evangelizing the lost? I want you to hear me say, those are the most important things. And any church that is preaching the word, discipling their people well, and evangelizing the lost, praise God for them, right? I mean, those are the most important things. Uh, So, number one, the Bible does not give direction on size. So we should no more take, it's possible to take pride in being big. It's also possible to take pride in being small, you know? That's, that's, that's probably my temptation, but we should, not, we should not go into either one of those ditches. And the, the questioner rightly put the emphasis on discipleship, evangelism, and the right preaching of the word. Okay, that said, here's the unsolicited opinion. What we're talking about is in the arena of prudence. We must be asking, what is most prudent? Which forms will most nurture the church into the future? Here's another very important question. Which forms will enable the church to thrive in the coming cultural winter? Um, People talk about the different seasons of uh, freedom that the church has. Their spring, so you can imagine uh, that you could imagine, um, oh man. What's what's the country? Is the flag is red and it's it's a black like a like a bird? Um, oh man! In the former USSR, just start saying countries. Um, um, it's, 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 I'm sorry. No, it's it's not it's not Romania. I, anyway, I had a sweet mate in college who was from this country, and it, this was like one of the countries that, like, on Christmas morning, 1989, they went in and killed the you know the the supreme in their country. And I mean, he was all about like you know. I mean, I thought there were some conservative, you know, I thought there were some conservative people uh, at, at my college. But it was like this guy's like 20 years old, and he's like quoting Ronald Reagan and stuff because he's all like, yeah, the Cold War's over, you know. He's really excited about freedom. 
them. And, and, and in, in that context, the church was able to blossom in their cultural spring. They had been in a winter for so long, repressed and unable to have church publicly. And then, all of a sudden, the bonds are released. And they go into this cultural spring. Missionaries start coming in, training the pastors. Churches start growing. They start planting churches. They start multiplying leaders. That's what a spring is like. A summer is, and I'm not talking about the health of everything that was going on in the church. A summer is when the culture is very accepting of the church and of the gospel. Um, and so you, you could, I mean, you can just think about, you know, a rerun of Andy Griffith. That would be like a cultural summer. Uh, we are right now, what most folks are saying, Tim Keller has written on this, we're, we're, we are in a cultural fall or a cultural autumn, right? There's still a, the residue and the vestiges of acceptance in our land is still certainly enshrined in our law, but the culture is becoming more hostile to the things that, that we believe. And then there's a cultural winter when things are very difficult, um, so wherever you find yourself on the clock or on the seasons, um, there, there is a, unless revival comes, there is a cultural winter that is um, on our way. And so which forms of church will, be, will best equip the church for us to um, weather that season? Lastly, which forms seem to protect us from the temptations of the human heart and from the temptations arising from the secularizing culture? In other words, there seems to be something corrosive about... Um, numerical success to the, in the heart of the leadership. I've footnoted down here a number of uh, people. I even left out uh, the one dude whose name I... Uh, McDonald. I mean, Johnny Hunt, Darren Patrick, Mark Driscoll, Carl Lentz, Perry Noble, James McDonald, and, and honestly, the list goes on. Um what uh, some people have said, basically what Mike Cosper has said, their, their success outpaced their character. They were not able to sustain the kind of success. Like, I mean, failure is hard to deal with. I would imagine success is incredibly hard to deal with because you start thinking that you're the reason that everything's being so successful, and that just in creates... This, this pride that then morphs into a I can't be wrong and the next thing you know you're spiritually abusive and all kinds of stuff. So here's the deal. Size isn't the problem. Indeed, Charles Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle, a megachurch in the 1800s and a megachurch, it would be a megachurch today if it were still the size that it was then, it was able to maintain health by a system. I mean, they, they, they took it so seriously. They had communion tickets. Before the Lord's Supper, you would have to come to the church and meet with a pastor 
like just to check in, like, hey, I'm a member of the church, I'm still around, right? You would get a communion ticket. When the communion service came around, you would present your ticket, and, and that's how you were able to go to the table. It was not a, hey, we don't want you up here. It's a, if you're going to come to the table, we want to make sure that you're actually, you know, uh, still following Jesus. Um, uh, an elder would co- conduct membership interviews in the church. Uh, get this, the church removed from membership some 2,728 members for either non-attendance or disciplinary action like unrepentance uh, between the years 1856 and 1892. So that's a pretty good clip there. Uh, But in many cases, it's the mentality that seeks size as a goal that is the problem. The desire to be large creates an environment in which certain things are prized above what is healthy. This is my fundamental concern with the seeker-sensitive movement and what I have called the intentional megachurch mentality. So I would caution against a self-confidence, I would even say pride, that suggests that a key leader or a new philosophy is so good that it needs to be centralized and placed on a pedestal. This kind of thinking is called numerous evangelical downfalls of successful pastors who sought to grow their brand on the backs of their church instead of multiply and Send. Number two, I would point out the very American anomaly of megachurches. I already talked about that. Number three, I would encourage churches to do the hard work of raising up leaders and sending them out. The hoarding of pastoral resources is leaving far-flung churches without shepherding. Number four, I would caution against the tendency of megachurches to foreground the high-production service portion of the church's life, creating an evangelical mass that is observed and consumed instead of a family that is joined and known. And lastly, if most megachurch growth is transfer growth instead of conversion growth, as Dr. Kidd has suggested, if that's the case, I would prompt us to ask what we are accomplishing. So I hope that has been charitable. I hope it has been arenic. I hope it has been balanced. I hope you have not heard me say that it's really good to be small. It's really bad to be big. I hope that you have heard me to say that it's about the heart underneath what is going on. And at some large churches, that heart is very good. At some large churches, that heart, uh, I have questions. Um, But anyway, uh, because this has been a teaching session, um, I would just, you know, and this is Ask the Pastor, Uh, If you have a question that you feel like would be helpful, I would go for it.